0: Also knowing that I've got the training and a mindset that one switches to so that one is always on the alert, one is always in the back of the mind, ready, they're trained to take over, to do what one has to do.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things
0: went south. You've
1: got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a base no, Being
0: this around big, tall trees, like thick shrubbery, way. potentially connecting There's
1: to other moments tough. in his life yeah. during battle. You know, you a oh, part of oh, story. The
0: story of transformation is powerful.
2: I'm Sharon Maskeldare and you're listening to Life on the Line. In today's podcast, we meet Group Captain Leslie Carney, who's currently on operations in the Middle Eastern area of operations with the Royal Australian Air Force. Leslie, thank you very much for joining us on Life on the Line today.
0: Thank you, Sharon. It is a delight to be here and to meet you. Well, tell
2: us a bit about how you came to be interested in joining the Air Force. I mean, where did you grow up in Australia, and when did the military come on your radar?
0: My father was part of the first RAF element to go to Vietnam in August 1964 and my two elder siblings were born in a British army hospital in Penang where my father was serving at RAF Butterworth in 1968 and 1969. In Vietnam my father was with RAF Transport Flight Vietnam which operated caribou aircraft from a coastal town called Vung Tau, and that later changed to 35 Squadron So I was born in Penrith in 1971, whilst my father was serving at RAF Richmond. I suppose being a child of an Air Force member, I understood the military way of life and that also come with many moves around Australia. Because of my father's service obligations, most of the heavy lifting of the family fell to my mother so i got to 17 years of age where i graduated from springwood state high school and i felt a i suppose a moral responsibility to my country in human nature we tend to do what we're familiar with i thought well i will follow in my father's footsteps and join the air force i looked upon the air force as a just organization I was also heavily influenced in my high school years through a particular letter, which I think is famous, which I think you'll know, Sharon, is the letter from Birmingham jail. That being the open letter written by Martin Luther King Jr. around, I think, 16th of April 1963, where it was about his quote in that, "'Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere.'" And if I thought that if I could perhaps do something for voiceless people around the world, that also was another reason I joined the military, because I knew that not only would we be a part of national support base in Australia and put in Australia's national interests, but also we would be travelling globally as part of a military lifestyle and that's what I've done as well.
2: Goodness me, I mean, at such a young age, Leslie, then you had this real sense of your own personal connection to justice. I mean, talk us through that. Did you somehow inherit that? Do you think through your father's values and your family's values, or was that just innate to you that you felt such a connection to justice?
0: Well, I have to thank my parents for that. I was lucky that I had a childhood where I was never subjected to any sort of domestic violence or or any sort of difficulties, and it was an environment of growth and learning in a safe environment. I look upon my mother as a Seraphic, I say as an angel, and she has always been someone that has an affinity to support people with her volunteer work throughout looking after her children. And I think that innate in me is the affinity to support people and which is quite hilarious because now I'm over here as the director of support
2: so that real connection then to supporting others helping others was very much of your upbringing then Leslie what about when you got into the air force and then you undertook your first training what was that experience like for you
0: It was an avalanche of emotions and if I can put it in the context of a 17-year-old who at the time I thought I was quite elderly but when one is nearly 50 one realises how young 17 years of age is. But coming from I suppose a tactical hearts and minds perspective. Let's talk about emotions and anxiety. I remember suffering, extreme separation, anxiety and homesickness and then waiting in a long line to use the one public telephone and crying to my parents on a nightly basis and having the advice from my father with, Lovey, be strong, you've got to get through this, you're a soldier. But they were also the days of the buzzword was discharge on request and and the acronym is DOR and we use lots of acronyms in the military. So it was, oh, someone's DOR. Oh, ah, someone's discharged on request, and I remember it was my goal to not discharge on request to see this through. With the physical and academia side of things, we focused on things like introduction to military skills, uh, weapon handling, field exercises, dress and bearing. I remember failing miserably at military combat and exercises with many attempts to leap over tall walls unsuccessfully. I remember I didn't have the strength in my arms to carry weapons so I'd have to uh, carry bricks in between carrying my weapons to build up the strength in my arms so I could handle and control weapons with confidence. I remember going out with my brethren to seriously cold places where we'd have to do picket duty and and enact an exercise scenario. And I remember calling stand two on picket duty and waking up the entire camp when the enemy turned out to be a shadow of a possum in a tree. (laughs) I think we can put the humour in that, but in all seriousness, the turning point was recognising the commitment and huge mental and physical capacity other people had the importance of teamwork. But if we talk about tensions, I think internal tensions at 17 years of age was letting go of adolescence and all the dependency wrapped in that and transitioning to being independent and to the challenges of adulthood.
2: It sounds like it was a real turning point in your life. I mean, just it sounds like you entered the recruit training unit, frankly, as a teenager, but you came out as a young woman.
0: Yes exactly
2: were you conscious of that at the time were you aware that that's what you'd achieved
0: i think so yeah yeah and there was probably more focus more in the limelight per se not in the media back then but also i was representing australia so there was always the awareness of the expectations there as well
2: and your first posting was to the one central ammunition depot What did that involve in terms of the work that you did once you got out of recruit training?
0: It was transporting explosive ordnance via the means of a convoy around, if I say national support base, I'm in Australia. So delivering explosive ordnance and complying with the myriad of restrictions that come with the safety aspects of dealing with explosive ordnance to where they had to be prioritised around Australia.
2: That sounds like a very complex job with a very high level of responsibility. I mean, you know, what kind of training did you have to do specifically to be able to perform that role?
0: Oh, yeah. Lots of reading policy, legislation and days of academia and classwork to go through all of the things one has to know to deal with explosive ordnance.
2: Wow. Goodness me. So when you think back on those times, did it come naturally to you to to be able to do that particular role or were there any particular challenges along the way?
0: Challenges would be, I suppose, the mental fortitude required to perform relentlessly and provide the necessary capability.
2: You then posted to 501 Wing Amberley and you commissioned as a logistics officer in 1996. The decision to commission, that was obviously one that you took after some thoughts and you obviously had some ideas about where you wanted to take that in terms of your career.
0: Yeah, I think the key is to have a structured goal to going forward. And I was, I've was always been a consequential thinker. So I suppose I did think of long-term and I just thought, okay, I feel as though I have the abilities, the capacities, but also the passion there to be able to put blood, sweat and tears, into a military lifestyle where I could be commissioned and influence it so it can be the organisation it needs to be, I I suppose, without sounding too solipsistic there.
2: And then by 2003, you three, you're a squadron leader and you were in Williamtown and you completed a tour at the Hornet Upgrade Program. So what did that involve working on that particular program?
0: There were a lot of capability upgrades and modifications to that particular aircraft platform. So it was able to be drawn out until new capabilities come through. And I think the extraordinarily academic personnel that the ADF partners with in terms of our scientists, the people that we meet at universities, the high evolving tech organisations and contractors that help make up the strain Defence Organisation where their talent and their extraordinary ability to think beyond being able to work with what I believe are unsung heroes in that space, but also learn from them and to be a mentor and to put myself at risk of of learning new things. And I love learning new things. So being in a collaborative environment, working on a shared vision with partnered people in support of Australia and Australian industry is what probably were the highlights there working on the um, the classic Hornet aircraft. yeah. So I went from F-111 aircraft platform to the Hornet platform and then I was posted overseas to Washington DC to put in Australian interests into the Joint Strike Fighter program. And I was still over there where, where the Joint Strike Fighter program, was in its nascent stage. And I was privileged to go to Lockheed Martin in Fort Worth, Texas. And I'm pretty sure the last F-22 Raptor was still being built. And I think the Australian Joint Strike Fighter aircraft were um, at this design stage and modifications were going on and those sorts of things.
2: So for our listeners who might not be too familiar with the Joint Strike Fighter program, I mean, it's well known throughout defence, often discussed. Can you perhaps give us a summary of what is that program and and why has it continued to have such importance historically for the Royal Australian Air Force?
0: I think because the collaboration, the amount of other countries and services and groups involved in that, and certainly our our alliance and collaboration with the United States, the gargantuan amount of resources in a positive sense that have applied themselves and invested and worked with coalition partners to, built what we know as a fifth generation aircraft and look I don't profess to be an expert on that I think it certainly took us to the next level of fifth generation stealth and capability but also probably strengthened our alliance with the amount of Australian defence members working with the U.S.
2: And what was it like then being over in the U.S.? I mean, clearly, as you say, their collaboration was pretty central and important. But what was it like for you just as a young officer in the Air Force working over in the United States?
0: I think that the impact was probably felt more with my family, having my husband and two children come over there. It was education outside of the classroom for my children. I mean, my son was one when we flew over there and he was almost five when we flew back. And my daughter was just sort of attending middle school. And I suppose it made me think how really sheltered my childhood and perhaps my children's childhood had been when we we come to another country where the different philosophies and religions that were living right in our street some of the American people, the way they viewed us assies, the way they used to call us, oh, you are the assies. And I hope it's not cringeworthy me doing any sort of fake American accent. But some of the Americans viewed us as, oh, you are the people that, you know, live right across a, a gigantic ocean from that place down under. And you're the people that talk funny. <laughs> so I suppose it was great for my children and family to see and experience another country. And also my husband was doing all the, well all the domestic duty fell onto my husband he did all the heavy lifting because with my service obligations I was traveling to Texas Fort Worth because that's where the Joint Strike Fighter was being built I'm traveling over to Crystal City where our program office was so I could meet and greet and collaborate with you know, extraordinary men and women over there but my husband was you know he became the popular person in the street where he would be organizing the morning teas he would be organizing other wonderful things in the streets dealing with um, the schooling the education 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 of our children, being the taxi, the cook, being everything. And he made some extraordinary relationships over there as well with our neighbours. And he's been able to continue those relationships.
2: And what about for your children? I mean, they're now grown up children. What are their memories of that time? Was it quite a a sort of important time of their lives?
0: For my son, he tells me, and he's 14 now, he doesn't remember that. Although my daughter, who is 20 years of age now, she does remember it. She looks upon it fondly. But my son still carries a slight American accent. And that's because when he was, you know, forming his words at age two or so, he had the heavy influence of an American accent. So he continues to roll his R's. So even at high school now, in grade eight, new students that meet him ask him, you you speak funny, but to him he doesn't. So there's a little bit of a carryover.
2: It's interesting that, isn't it? You know, just often how, you know, when you have families and particularly in a military context, there's often a requirement to live and work overseas and and there can be those kind of long-lasting impacts. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. My husband is also a serving member, so we've tried to be the best role models we can be for our children. As a consequence, my daughter, she also wants to have a life of doing things that are just, and she's in her second year of a criminology degree. So she wants to get into that field and see where she can um, make sure that justice prevails. Be a voice for the voiceless.
2: So after you completed your time in the US, you came back
0: to Australia.
2: You then ended up moving into health. So how did that
0: move come about? It was a posting to... RAF Base Amberley, whereby we were promoting and standing up a health capability in an operational sense. So it was having the health capability and capacity of being able to provide medical treatment and first class medical, well, the class eight stores around the globe. And that was my introduction to, again, I say the term unsung heroes, which are our doctors and nurses who are there to save people's lives, save people's lives around the world. So I very much try to live with gratitude and it was certainly a privilege and I had a lot of gratitude being able to work with doctors and nurses, people that specialise in these sorts of areas. And it was at Health Services Wing when I got to two little adventures. One was on USS Blue Ridge and then it was my deployment to Kandahar Airfield. And wow, USS Blue Ridge. I'm not sure if you're aware of that particular command ship, but it's first of the two Blue Ridge class amphibious command ships of the United States Navy. And it's a flagship of the 7th Fleet. If we focus on the human side of things. I worked in the bows of the ship and I felt like a vampire. And it's hats off to our Navy folk. And I look over to my Navy brethren as I'm in the room with him that work in these claustrophobic small spaces, enduringly in the depths of the ocean, in cramped spaces, and we are so dependent on the ship and her crew, but the mental fortitude required to, you know, relentlessly perform these tasks. And one has to ride the wave, so to speak. There are days where I sort of couldn't get up to the deck just to get a little bit of vitamin D because the seas were so rough and, you know, it was too dangerous to do that. And that just brings a whole level of, of teamwork because we live and work together where there really is no privacy especially when we have to work with people who are doing shift work. So we have to be most considerate on that's learning how to get dressed in the dark, you know, complete all of our ablutions in the dark as to not wake up other people who are just extraordinarily tired from all of their shift work. And also, that led me to my deployment for six and a half months in 2014 to Kandahar Airfield in Afghanistan, which to me was a hurricane of responsibility, an introduction to Middle Eastern culture. And on a more comical sense, I do remember thinking, what have I got myself into? I think the very first day I turned up there, we had received enemy incoming fire. You know, there's all these actions on, which I won't go into detail in, but a part of that was basically face planting my into the dirt for the protection and I just remember basically eating the dirt thinking wow this is again something another place another experience that this military lifestyle has taken me to that I never thought that I'd be doing.
2: You tell that story with a sense of humor but the reality of face planting with incoming fire coming over the top of you that must have been terrifying.
0: Oh yeah. It's compelling, it's confrontational to others that have been there before. It's probably their bread and butter, it's what they do. But from someone coming from a health services wing where you know my role was to make sure that all of our health equipment was at such a state that it could be deployed anywhere so that we could save human lives and then here I am basically eating the dirt. I look around and I look at other people and I think, these are the highly skilled, brave, confident men and women that make up our Australian Defence Force, but also our coalition forces. And I just think, wow, this is something else I need to get through. And we get through it.
2: So can I ask, I mean, and I'm sure our listeners would be interested to know more, I mean, what does it take to actually find yourself in a situation like that and indeed get through it? I mean, what kind of resilience do you have to tap into? I mean, what what are the kind of skills that you end up learning in terms of managing your own fear?
0: Learning to not react. I think it's understanding, yes, knowing oneself, knowing that, yes, I'm fearful at the moment, but knowing that that fear is not going to be the final feeling, that one will work through that and there are better days ahead, so to speak.
2: So I imagine being based at Kandahar Airfield, it would have been a target for the Taliban and the reality of the threat would have been presence most of the time. What was your experience of managing that kind of ongoing reality that you were consistently in a place which was a target?
0: I think first of all seeking the support of others around me, knowing that we are all in this together, seeking comfort also knowing that i've got the training and a mindset that one switches to so that one is always on the alert one is always in the back of the mind ready they're trained to take over to do what one has to do i think it's having that capacity to switch on that okay i'm now in this mode and this is what i need to do having that fortitude there drawing upon that that fortitude and lots of deep breaths and finding comfort where one can amidst that
2: so clearly A very formative time requiring a lot of resilience. And indeed, it sounds as well that you experience a lot of mateship, a lot of coming together in terms of mutual support in the coalition environment. What did you then bring home from that deployment to Afghanistan? Because your next posting was to um, the headquarters of Joint Operations Command. So what did you bring into that very much overarching command institution that you'd learned from being on operations?
0: Definitely putting and supporting others, trusting others, knowing that we have to rely on other people, putting oneself at risk of learning, putting oneself in situations that at the time may seem breathtaking and compelling, but getting through that and then being able to grow from that experience um, and allowing other people to mentor me and teach me and I I have a philosophy that everybody I meet in my life I think okay is a teacher of some sort and I'm a student of some sort and then what have I learned from that particular person or that particular experience and what aspect will I take out of that and go forward. I suppose being the commanding officer at JOC was very much a lot of it was at the human resource, but a lot of it was dealing with things so that C JOPs, our, our three-star there, was able to focus on the strategic and most important things that he had to focus on with decisions he made globally. I was a gatekeeper to deal with things to keep him at the level he needed to deal with. But in the human resource clinical space, it was keeping people at their steady state right to keep on supporting the myriad of force assigned personnel around Australia, around the world who were working on operations and exercises. It was about putting facilities in place, a support network, so that it increased people's capability to produce what we had to do in support of exercises and operations globally.
2: And by the time you came back to Australia from Afghanistan, I mean, you were decorated. I mean, you'd received a bronze star as the Kandahar Airfield Chief logistics officer. When was that award given to you? Was it while you were still in operations or was it when you were at headquarters Jock?
0: It was given to me in a little ceremony by General Fantini, who was my supervisor and mentor at the time. He was Comcaf, Commander Kandahar Airfield. Uh, So it was given to me just prior to me coming home. It was also an experience working with the myriad of other NATO representatives and I'm very much someone who likes to understand other people. We all come here and we come to operations and exercises with our own sort of values, our own experiences, different phases of our lives and we perhaps look at through one particular lens and then I try to understand how other people, what lens they're looking through that sort of can explain their behaviour and their attitudes and then I very much try to understand look through the full lens and get the big picture. And you mentioned
2: there that you're back in theatre at the moment as we're speaking to you today for Life on the Line you're on operations in the Middle Eastern area of operations and obviously won't talk about exactly where you're located How does your role as you're currently performing on operations, how does that compare with previous roles then that you've had with the Australian Defence Force?
0: Being in a support role here, my job is to make sure that the brave men and women, irrespective of what mission they are doing, are able to complete their mission by myself and my team here in providing the most helpful support services and enabling functions so that ultimately when the the missions are completed in theatre, Australia is safe. So I see my support here is indirectly related to the safety of Australia. I think that being and experiencing Kandahar, I'm able to see through the lens of the people that are on operations forward. And because I have that empathy and sympathy, it enables me to drive and influence our support mechanisms here to be commensurate with the operational tempo required to provide the best and most helpful support we can provide.
2: So it sounds like that experience that you've had, I mean, it it really is informing the way that you're going about your senior role in terms of supporting those men and women who are indeed out there right now and are continuing to put their lives on the line.
0: I think so. And I have to say, we are privileged to have the support from the leadership that we have here as well.
2: Now, I know that while you're in operations, you probably have very little time to do anything other than just perform your role and getting on with what is needed to be done. But what other parts of your life are important to you? I mean, my understanding is is that, for example, you're quite interested in Buddhist philosophy. So tell us a bit about that.
0: It's the realization that everything is impermanent. And with that to me comes that knowing that we are only ever given an unknown amount of days to live. So having that in mind, it's living in the moment, but also living with a grateful heart. It's celebrating growing old. So many of my brethren have not had a chance to do that. It's about choosing my attitude. Meditation for me sets me with my best intentions for the day and it helps me choose my attitude, which is a positive, helpful attitude.
2: So do you meditate every day?
0: Most days, yeah. yeah. I'm
2: intrigued to know how you're able to do that in such a busy, hectic environment that that is the reality of when you're serving on operations. Uh, Are you able to take yourself away somewhere a little bit more quiet and a bit more private?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm pretty sure that Genghis Khan was able to do it, but but I, I dare not compare myself to anyone like that. But look, it's only for 10 minutes a day. It's sort of just what I need to set my intentions. But being over here, the priority absolutely is the work, it's the support, any sort of escapism that I need just for a reset is, I'm lucky that I can um, FaceTime my family and, and obviously my family are beyond my interest and passions, that they are everything. So I'm lucky that I have great connectivity to speak to my family. And my husband, I have to recognise him here who is, all the heavy load is falling to him because he's studying a third year trained Defence Force Academy degree in um, aeronautical engineering. And he also has our daughter and our son and he's carrying the burden of the domestic household, but. We, um, <clears throat> I also like music and I am have been inspired from people like Winifred Atwell and I can't ever claim that I would ever be as brilliant as Winifred is on the piano but I'm learning piano while I'm over here and I find that that allows a little bit of um, escapism for me and a little bit of reset as well
2: Because I think that's the reality of being on operations isn't it is it's not always high tempo I think for some of our listeners they might imagine that when you're out on operations that it, it's full on every day, day in day out, and indeed, some operational deployments can be like that. But indeed, there are others where there are opportunities to learn new things and and expand your horizons. Now, throughout this podcast today, you've touched many times on on the importance of doing the right thing and of justice and of trying to make the world a better place. Is there a message perhaps you'd like to leave with our listeners on today's Life on the Line?
0: In a military context, I wish there wasn't a need for militaries. But unfortunately, there are, and I believe our military is military, that is doing the just thing. In terms of a personal level, it's the communication, it's the, it's the compromise, it's the compassion, setting best intentions, understanding the bigger picture, looking through the whole lens, lessen reactions, let's apply you know, the calm, logical, reasonable thinking to work through complex scenarios and surrounding ourselves with warm souls.
2: And it sounds like you've managed to achieve that over the years. You sound like you have a very supportive family and and a wonderful defence community around you.
0: Yes, yes. um, I very much enjoy my current AMAB defence family. Group Captain Leslie
2: Carney, thank you very much for joining us on today's Life on the Line and and sharing your reflections on the importance of your military service and, and some of your aspirations as a military leader.
0: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure and best wishes for you too and to all of our listeners out there. This is Sharon muskell and you've
2: been listening to Life on the Line.
1: Subscribe to this show in your podcast app and on YouTube to never miss an episode with Joint Task Force 633 and the other incredible stories of Australian veterans from our Army, Navy, Air Force and Special Forces. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can contact us by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.